You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, Motel California. Pick up Motel California in paperback or ebook formats wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to bring to you my interview with a true Renaissance man named Og Stone. So why do I call him a Renaissance man? Well, he's an author. He wrote a book called Off License to Kill, a James Vagabond novel. Uh, James Vagabond, yes, that is a take on James Bond. Um, but instead of working for uh, Britain's Secret Service, uh, James Vagabond <laughs> works for the Drunken Secret Service. And I tell you, uh, the book is hysterical. I haven't read anything this funny in a very long time. And uh, Og did a great job with it. But uh, he's also a singer-songwriter. He made his living touring uh, Europe as well as this fine country for for many, 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 many years, um, which I think is pretty cool. And then uh, lastly, he's a comic. I actually met him in the Connecticut comedy scene way back in January when I started doing stand up uh in earnest for the first time um and he's got this character called young southpaw which you, you really have to see and hear to believe um i i dig it i love it um and uh, it really speaks to me <laughs> but uh it is um you know he, he goes from point a to point z back to point b maybe touches upon j and sometimes hits point c the point is it's not a very linear uh, set that Og does as Young Southpaw, but it's hysterical, and I love it. Um, but I'll, I'll talk more about Og in a minute. Um, I'm actually recording this right after I ran a 5K, so um, I feel good, actually. I feel good about myself today because I had a good run. It was a good race. Um, I haven't been running uh, this well, gosh, in about 25 years since I was in high school. Actually, that was more than 25 years ago, wasn't it? I'm bad at math. Um, but when I got, when I got into the car after, uh, doing the race, there was a song on the radio and the song was zero by smashing pumpkins. And there, there's a line in the song where Billy Corgan, the singer, um, and the writer of the song says, I never let on that. I was on a sinking ship. I never let on that. I was down. You blame yourself for what you can't ignore. You blame yourself for wanting more. And that song, those lyrics really hit me this morning because um, it got me thinking about like a lot of big changes I've made in my life over the past nine months. So if we were to rewind back to January of 2019, I uh, was about 30, 32 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I wasn't feeling good about myself. I um, didn't like what I saw in the mirror. My clothes weren't fitting well. I uh, it really, really came to light for me when I would get up on stage. I'd record my sets. Um, and 
I would watch them just to learn kind of what worked well and, of course, what didn't work well to see what I needed to tighten up, change, remove, etc. This is stuff that um, those of us who have a immediate need for gratification or a need for immediate gratification have to do, <laughs> which is what I consider comics to be. These people who have um, uh, constant uh, need for constant validation. Uh, anyway, I would watch these sets and... I'm like, who's who's that guy? Like, I don't recognize the guy I'm looking at in the video. I didn't recognize him. And I made a conscious choice to change myself. You know, it started with uh, eating differently, um, went to exercising more. I kept up with the food plan that I went on, you know, like 90% of it. You know, I, I had, a, of course, a couple slips every now and then. But... um but over that period of time, I lost uh, about 30, almost 35 pounds. And I feel great about myself now. But the point is, when I heard those lyrics this morning, you know, I never let on that I was on a sinking ship. I never let on that I was down. I'm like, I did, and that was me. Like, I never let on to anybody how I was feeling on the inside. And I, I hit a turning point, you know, on my on my 45th birthday this year, which was just a few weeks ago. And um, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make a promise to myself to not hold everything on the inside anymore. And, you know, to, to let people know, like, when, you know, when something's bothering me. And it was something that I felt I owed to myself as well as the people around me. You know, my, my you know, modus operandi, <laughs> my MO was always to be passive aggressive. And um, that's not pleasant, right? I mean, you ever hang out with somebody who's passive aggressive? It's, those aren't typically people you want to hang out with. Um, so it wasn't cool. And um, I've, I've made some changes to, to myself. So, you know, I, I spent so much time working on the outside of myself for, for most of this year. Now I'm like turning to working on the inside of myself. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to be more honest with people. I'm trying to be more honest with myself. I'm trying to be direct with people, whether it's personal relationships or, or with work, um, because uh, I have had a tendency to, uh, you know, in my own career, let people kind of walk over me a little bit. And um, uh, I don't think that's that's cool. And I don't want to I don't want to be that person anymore. So the whole point is um, I had a good race this morning. I had a good message coming in through the radio via Billy Corrigan and Smashing Pumpkins and um I get to share with you a fantastic interview with Aug Stone, which I'm going to do now. I'm going to stop talking about myself because this podcast isn't about me. This podcast is about um, uncorking the stories of people who do some really interesting things in the world. And Aug Stone and his alter ego, Young Southpaw, is one such person. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, if you want to learn more about Aug, uh, you can go to augstone.com or conversely visit his alter ego's website, youngsouthpaw.com. You will not be disappointed uh, spending time on either. So without further ado, here is my interview with the one and only Renaissance man himself, Aug Stone. Good to see you outside of a, uh, a dark a dark room, right? Whether it's yeah, the, it's the first time we've ever seen each other in the daylight. I know it's kind of weird. It's, I didn't even know we existed in the daylight sometimes because all this stuff happens at night. But um, what um, where where's Hogstone from? Let's start from the beginning. Like where? Give me the origin story. The origin story. Um, I was born in Milford and moved to Stratford when I was two and grew up there. 
And then I went to Boston University when I was 18, lived in Boston for 10 years, which I think was just the right amount of time. Uh, I like Boston a lot, but I think if I stayed any longer, I would have started not to like it. Just Because yeah. uh, I, I had the feeling I wanted to move on. And then I, uh, I, went, I went to London, which I, um, September 2003, I went over to record some music, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I was like, i got to be here. Yeah. And I did whatever I could for the next nine years. Uh, I went to back to school. I had post-study work visas. I went on long visitor visas and was there until 2012. Well, dial it back. So when you, oh, yeah. were, when you were like in high school, though, like what, or even before then, like what did you want to be when you grew up? Like what, what did a young Og want to, want to do with his life? A wizard. Nice. <laughs> this I, is pre-Harry Potter days, too. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty good. I, I remember when I was like four, just, and I found a picture of myself recently for Halloween dressed as a wizard. It was just like, yeah, that, that's what I wanted to do. Um, it, I love the idea of, of magic and just, you know, all sort of arcane knowledge coming together, which somehow coalesced into pop culture references. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, you and I are, are probably close in age. I think I'm a couple years older than you, maybe, but... Where did your love of wizardry come from? Because I, I think back to, to, like, when I was a kid, like, I was fascinated by that movie. Um, uh, God, what was it? it? It was the King Arthur movie. Excalibur. Excalibur. Yeah. And I'm like, Merlin, man, that, yep. that, that guy's the shizzle. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's Tim the Enchanter from yeah. Monty Python, you know. But, like, where, where did this, like, interest in wizardry come from? I think it's, like, from a lot of things, it was my older cousins who were anywhere from like eight years to three years older than I was. Uh, I guess I, I think it's five older cousins, six maybe. Um, and they, they were really into D and D like it had yeah. just come out and they were playing it. I was like too young to really play it, but I was like looking up to them and like, Oh, that looks so cool. And like I had the books and it all just looked like the artwork was really, you know, fascinating to me. And then, yeah, of course, like then you're the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, you know, yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. The little dungeon master yep. and, uh, on, on the, on the, the amusement park ride. Right. Yeah. Things got a little got a little hairy for them. <laughs> I, yeah, I tried I tried Dungeons and Dragons twice in my life. So the first time I tried it, it was probably in middle school, and like the uh, the recluse kid down the street was really into it. So he tried to get me into it, and I just I, it wasn't my thing. And then my brother and I, brother Jimmy, who you have met mm. through uh, the comedy thing, um, we were oh God, we were lifeguarding in college, and. This guy was like, hey, man, you want to play Dungeons and Dragons one night? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. My brother's like, come on, it could be fun. <laughs> so, like, as grown men, kind of, we go to this guy's house, and he hires, like, his, <laughs> his dungeon master who lives with his mom. He's, like, 35 years old, right? You could not get more stereotypical. <laughs> lives with his mom. He's drinking out of a box of wine. <laughs> like, before, like... Boxes of wine were a thing. He had one. And I'm like, what is this guy drinking out of? He's like doing it. And he was so into it. I'm like, I look at my brother. We leave. And I'm like, we are never coming back to this house again. <laughs> like, we're just not going to do it. But we got a good story out of it anyway. <clears throat> so you want to be a wizard. So when did it? Re- when did you realize that um, wizardry may not be a career option that you could really pursue? Uh I, I think back then, like, I'm I'm very excitable about stuff anyway. I get, tend to get really into things. Like, at the same time, I remember wanting to be an archaeologist after seeing Raiders of the Lost no. Ark. That film was just such a big influence yeah. on me. Like, to this day, I Nepal is, like, my number one destination where I want to go just from that scene at yeah. the beginning where he goes to find Marianne. Um, so that was going on at the same time. And, of course, you know, growing up on all these things, you know, coming – to it. And like again, the influence of my older cousins, like their excitement about music was what. Re- well, I shouldn't say 
growing up, my mom would always play like the girl group 45s and the Beatles. And I would just sit there loving it and like coming home from school and putting on the records myself. And like, it was just making up stories in my head, like what was going on with the songs and stuff. And then my older cousins were becoming teenagers. And of course that's when Van Halen hit. And I remember my cousin, Keith, um, who was a great guy and was always like super supportive of like everything I did. Like, when 1984 rolled around, he, he called up my mom and was like, can I come? And mom was like, he's eight years old. He's not going to the Harvard Civic Center with you. And he's right. like, oh, come on, um, which I appreciate so much. But two years later, Eat Him and Smile, David Lee Ross' oh, first man. solo tour, my mom allowed me to go with them. And I have to say, like, his – first of all, just to talk about Van Halen for a second. Oh, we could talk all day. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's always the whole Sammy or Dave thing, right? Um, I actually do like them both. Prefer the Dave years because Fair Warning is my favorite album, so I have to go with Dave. Um, but Dave's solo band with Steve I, Billy Sheehan, and I always forget who the drummer is. Greg Bissonnette. Greg Bissonnette. One of the most fantastic bands ever yeah. to be put together. And Dave just announced, I'm sure you heard it, he's doing uh, a residency in Vegas. I didn't um, hear about this. I am it very was excited. Just, it was just announced, <laughs> I think, starting in January. And by residency, I think he's doing like three dates at the House of Blues or something. But they don't know who the band is. And I'm like, my God, if it's the David Lee Roth band from back in 85, wow. I am going to Vegas and yeah. I'm buying a ticket because fucking, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to swear. But Steve Vai to me, talk about wizards. That guy is a wizard on the guitar. Yeah. That's what made me want to, seeing the Yankee Rose video, I saw the world premiere. Like, it was a big, exciting thing with my family. My older cousins were over, and we all made sure to gather on the TV to watch it. So we heard David Lee Ross, you know, new, first new singles coming out. Seeing Steve I make the guitar talk, yep. I wanted to play guitar. Like, that was it. From then on out, I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, and it's weird because, like, my guitar playing is nothing like Steve right. Vai's, but it was what made me want to pick up the instrument in the first place. And it was just that ex- excitement again that really got me into it. I, I don't know if there's anyone's guitar playing that's quite like Steve Vai's. I mean, you can look at Eric Johnson or um, uh, who's the other guy he tours with? He's oh, a yeah, tour with a lot. Tour the G3 together. tour. Joe um, Satriani. Joe Satriani. Like, those guys to me are kind of, uh, yeah, they're in the same kind of headspace anyway, and the, the virtuoso musician. But I remember reading about. Steve Vai and and just how he would sit in class and transcribe Frank Zappa's yeah. music from memory. <laughs> I'm like, there are like special people in the world, and that is the talent that I will never have. But, yeah. You know, um, sorry. Right, so you wanted to be a wizard. Um, music became important into your life. When did you start thinking? Because I, I know you you were still are a working musician. Um, when did you start thinking that music could be uh, an avenue toward towards making a living. Uh, I mean, that was always the goal. I mean, it's just very, very hard. Like I, I wanted to go to music. So I wanted to go to Berkeley yeah. uh, for for college, but uh, my father really wanted me to get a uh, quote unquote proper education. So I ended up going to Boston University for business, which was just not me at all. And I ended up uh, switching to in- being an English major after two years. It, it was funny, actually. Um, because I was doing something I didn't want to be doing. Like I just, I never went to class. And yeah. then sophomore year when uh, registration opened up uh, to enroll for junior, all the business courses I had to take, I was sleeping to like four thirty in the afternoon and then just getting up and hanging out with my friends all night. And I slept through registering for classes for a month and a half. Wow. And when I finally made it to the registrar's office at a reasonable time, they're like, yeah, all the, uh, all the classes you need to take have been full for quite a while, Mr. Stone. 
but I had my four electives open that I still had to take with my major. So I was like, all right, you know, and, um, a girl I was in love with at the time convinced me to take an existentialism class with her. And then the three other classes I took, uh, two literature, one poetry class. And it was great. And it was reminded me cause I, again, with music, I, I loved to read growing up. Um, and I, I remember just reading all the time before I picked up a guitar. That was my thing. I just read books constantly. And uh, sort of that girl reawakened my love of literature as well. Then I was taking these classes. And slowly, um, yeah, I was coming toward the end of college. And I, I hadn't had – I had had a band my freshman year of college. I realized this is all over the place. That's all right. That's cool. Yeah. How I I'll, I'll dial it back. Don't worry. Uh, I, had a, I had a punk band with my friends from high school. We had started like the summer after senior year, right before we were moving away. Then the summer when we came back. We were like, oh, remember those jams we used to do? And like, we got together, and it was great. Um, you know, we, we really worked hard. We practiced every day. We played a bunch of shows all around Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York. Uh, and it was just so intense. I remember at the end, like, at the end of that summer, we, we broke up, and we weren't speaking for a while. And it was very awkward because, you know, these are your best friends who you've just, you know, tried to – do what you want to do with your life with, you know, have a band together and go play, make records and play shows and uh, just doing it, being together all the time every day. And then I remember the, the summer after that, we were hanging out all the time again, but we were just, you know, hanging out, like going to bars and watching movies and having fun. We, we didn't play music because it was like, you know, we had been through that and we yeah. kind of valued our friendship more. So like through college, I didn't have a, a band after that. I'd always play music with my friends, but we never tried to do anything. And it was kind of in the back of my mind, like, you know, I'd like to do this, but it's also the human relationship aspect of it is very, it's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And I remember at, at the end of college, I was like, I really miss doing this. I want to be, this is what I've always wanted to do. Why have I spent the past three years not doing this? And I remember walking, uh, just walking around Alston, Massachusetts, where I was living. And my friend Craig was walking his dog and I ran into him and I was like, Oh, how's your band going? He's like, Oh, we need a bassist. So we've been having a break for us. I was like, Oh, I play bass. And now I'm a guitar player, but yeah. I mean, I, I can't play bass. I like playing bass. And he's like, oh, well, why don't you come audition? So like, I had to go buy a bass. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I learned all the songs, and then I was in this band. And then like, I was just got, I was involved in music again. And ever since then, like, you know, it's been a huge part of my life, well, at least until uh, last year. <laughs> when, did, uh, when did you pick up your first guitar? It would have been right after I saw the Yankee Rose video. I remember, because okay. I was really into lots of things at the time. Uh, again, being excited about things, I, I get real into something, and then I kind of discard. I, I loved drawing and painting and uh, you know, doing art, and I would take classes. And I didn't really like my teacher or the people in the class, so I just kind of stopped doing that. And I started a couple sports that I didn't like. And my father was like, "Well, you know, you've you know you've stopped doing all these things, although you were real excited about it at the beginning. You know, I'm not going to buy you elect an electric guitar." So he, my grandfather, actually made this acoustic. And the, the action, the strings were like three inches off the fretboard. It was like it was yeah. impossible to press down. But I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I'm going to learn no matter what. And I spent four months just somehow learning to play that instrument. I was looking at it. When I picked it up recently, it's just like so hard to even press down the strings. Yeah. But I, I did it. I practiced every day. And my father was like, all right. And he got me an electric guitar for Christmas. Yeah. And, uh, and then what did so largely self-taught or what was your approach? Um, no, I took lessons yeah. Um, yeah, from a guy in Stratford. Um, it was really good. But then, yeah, I, I, taught, I, I would rather read all the magazines. and you know, oh, Guitar you know. for the Practicing yeah, Musician was my that. favorite. Yeah. You know? And uh, Guitar Player was another one. Yeah, there were three. It was Guitar Magazine, Guitar for the Practicing Musician, which had the best um, 
uh, transcripts in it or the best tab, yeah. the best tab in it. Guitar you know, it's so world. funny, like Kid and Guitar World. Kids these days, it's like they have an app for it, right? They have an app. They can go on to uh, Songster. You know, I used to have it for 10 bucks a month and you can just get any tab you could ever dream of. Mm. Whereas back in the day, you there was no internet. You know, you had to, you had to hope that that, you know, month guitar for the practicing <laughs> musician or whatever had something that you could actually play because they, they would always like there was have like different levels of songs right and i am a crappy guitar player but um yeah they'd have something easy and then they'd have like zach wilde you know being transcribed from some ozzy song or something yeah. like that you know and it was what four or five songs and you were hoping it would one you wanted to learn right to exactly <laughs> exactly um so you picked up that guitar you started playing um and you go through college, switch the major. Now you're looking to play music. Go ahead. So to bring it back to yeah. those magazines, actually, uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, this was when Johnny Marr was on the cover of Guitar for the Practicing Musician and Guitar Player because uh, he was on the, the the album Mind Bomb. Mm-hmm. And reading his thoughts about music absolutely changed my life. It wasn't the flashy, you know, Steve Vai, Eddie Van Halen esque sort of stuff, and it was m- more melodic based, like stuff that you know, like growing up with the Beatles and all that yeah. Motown stuff that I had always had an interest in. And I remember just wanting to hear the Smiths so bad at that. Like after reading those interviews, I remember riding my bike down to Graf Wadman, the record store in Stratford. Yeah. And uh, they been raving about the Smiths live album rank. And the only tape they had was the first Smiths album, now the self-titled one. And I bought that and I was all excited. I went home and I put on, put it on. And the first song side one is real around the fountain. And I thought it was, the most beautiful song I had ever heard. And it took me a month to hear the rest of the album because I just kept rewinding that and listening to it over and over again. And yeah, I remember that as just a huge life-changing moment in which, yeah, my guitar playing became, I, I was open to a much wider world of, you know, how to fit in, you know, melodies and have, the, have it be supporting the vocals and you know, more about the song. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so when, so you were, you were kind of, we were jumping ahead before, but you were talking about going to London after, after Boston. Yeah. So what, 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 you know, London calling, right? So how, in what ways was London calling you? Um, (laughs) well, the first time I ever went there, I was 16. And, uh, as soon as my feet hit the ground, it felt like home to me. Mm. I can't explain it any other way than I've just always been a huge Anglophile. I'd love British music, I love British comedy, like Monty Python was such a huge influence on my life. Um, it's only very recently that I've started reading American authors. It was all, yeah. <laughs> like anything British, I was just immediately drawn to. And so in 2003, I had left my band, uh, Lifestyle, um, great band, a Boston band, very Duran Duran-y. Uh, I was managing us and playing guitar. Um, but I left and I started doing solo stuff and writing my own stuff more for the first time. And there's a producer over there, Ian Cat, who works with St. Etienne, who are one of my favorite bands. And I had these five songs with girls' names in the title that I wanted to make an EP called Girl Talk. And I sent him the demo. Like somebody, a mutual friend gave me his email. I sent him, uh, you know, introduced myself, said, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I would love it to sound like what you do. He said, yeah, send me the demos. And I was like, all right. And he was like, yeah, I like these. Uh, give me a call. We'll talk and we'll plan something. So I went over with the intention of, I had like six days recording with him, but I wanted to like, you know, be in London for a while and play shows. And I, I went to Frankfurt and did a show, which mm. was fun. And um, I had toured Sweden the year before, which was great. Uh, and it was just like, I'm, I didn't know anybody. And it was so exciting because it was just like, 
this is a completely blank canvas. I can do whatever I want with my life. But it's also scary because I'm also naturally really shy. Yeah. And I especially used to be so back then. And it's just like, I can't spend, I was going to be there for three and a half months. I was like, I can't just spend this all in my room alone or like sitting in a corner of a pub. I have to like go out and be extroverted and make friends, you know, and get to know people. And like, I had been in touch with a couple of people through email and they're like, oh yeah, we run a club night. Why don't you come say hello? And uh, this club, Strange Fruit, who did stuff every week, like they had a club night every week and they would put on gigs a couple of times a week. And they were like, they just kind of took me under their wing. And like, and constantly invited me to stuff, introduced me to people. They gave me a show uh, at Bush Hall, which was a really nice venue in London. And it was just fantastic. And then when I had to leave, because uh, it was Christmas and I had planned to go home, like, as soon as I got back, I was like, that's, that's where I want to be. Yeah. And actually, on my flight over to London for the first time, I loved the Bond novels growing up. And I found all my old 80s copies and I grabbed Under Majesty's Secret Service to read on the plane ride over. And it was funny. I got to page like 160 something and I realized I was missing like five pages. It's like one of the first thing I did when I got to London, like this major world city where there's so much going on. I I went to a bookstore and like read the missing pages so I could finish the novel properly. And then I, when I got back, I wanted to read more Bond stuff. And my first, the first time period in London was such, I mean, I was used to drinking quite a lot anyway, but in London, it was just so much more part of the culture. I was drinking incredible amount. And with all that and with reading the Bond stuff again, I like right after Christmas, I came up with the character of James Vagabond. Yeah. So this is, uh, of course the, the protagonist, chief protagonist in, uh, in your book, which I have right here called, uh, off license to kill a James Vagabond adventure. Which, by the way, is really one of the funniest things I've ever written. And it now it like makes now that I know that you were like an English major, like the quality of the writing makes so much sense to me. Because really, you know, I read I read a lot um, for for doing this podcast, and and some novels are are much better than others, let's say. <laughs> um, but just you know, like the prose in this is so good, and it's like not like heavily reliant on dialogue. You know, like it's just it's so vivid. But I I I. I um, just, just because you know, you and I met through the comedy scene. Um, I had, I just had to call out something here. Um, I just wanted to read something because I just got such a fucking. There I go again. I usually don't swear on this thing, <laughs> um, but I got such a kick out of this. So, uh, talking about James Vagabond, he toyed with the idea of working with a drinking coach when he got back to his normal routine in London. So, first of all, <laughs> a drinking coach is hysterical to me as somebody who doesn't really drink that much anymore, but. He had found it necessary to employ this measure only once before, and although it was a reasonable enough problem, some people just didn't like certain flavors, spelled with the proper British spelling, by the way. Um, <laughs> it was still an emasculating experience for any member of the service to have to go through. Ibranch, who handled this sort of thing, did quite a good job, though. Top secret, your prolonged absence from duty was disguised as the flu or a special assignment. I mean, it's, it's pure comedy. It's pure comedy. And this is just, you know, five pages in. Um, I mean, the other thing that I think is hysterical is having a time machine um, that cannot uh, go through both time and space (laughs) that has to be moved to the location where it has. So, I mean, I don't know how you come up with this stuff. I mean, I don't know how we all come up with the crazy notions we have. But when so so clearly reading those Bond novels and being in London and it sounds like a history of. Uh, enjoying um, distilled spirits. Um, 
encouraged you or influenced you to to start your first novel. But when did you start to think that, hey, I might want to try this writing thing? Actually, uh, it was a few years before that. I'd written some other stuff that, I mean, I'd completed, and looking back on it now, it's kind of, you know, it's not my best, but it was, you know, the necessary step to yeah. becoming, um, you know, a writer. I One of my first jobs out of college was a temp job working at Baybank, uh, which got bought by numerous banks. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. But I remember working in accounts receivable, and there were, like, and I like working with numbers. I like that things have to add up. I remember there being – I thought there were breaks in the day where I had to wait for stuff or just ideas would come to me and I had a ticker tape machine and I would like rip off things and just start writing down ideas you know, on just little scraps of paper and shoving them in my pocket and then I would go home and like just throw them in a folder that I would eventually do something with. Um, and then, yeah, I, I put together some stories from there. Uh, and it took it took way too long. I never realized how much being a writer is having to do it every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like it's like any other muscle, right? So if you are um, a weightlifter, you've got to lift weights every day. If you are a runner, you've got to do something cardio wise every day. If you are a writer, you've got to exercise that muscle every day, and every minute you put into it, you get something out of it. Yeah, you just always get better. Like I've written seven books now, and like each one just gets better because I'm better at it. Mm. Um, now they may not perform as well as, you know, my first one, which for my second one, rather, which for some reason outsells everything I've ever written, but, um, you know, you do get better at it and you have to be disciplined. Like, that's the thing. Like a lot of people tell me, like my kids, they're 17. Um, we have triplets. Uh, they, their friends are like, Hey, Mr. Carlin, you know, how do you write books? Or, or if I wanted to write a book, uh, what do you recommend? I'm like, I, there's two things I recommend people do if they want to write a book. The first is read a lot. Like, is you have to know, you have to find your voice somehow. And I think people find their voices by, you know, stealing a bit or borrowing a bit here and there from other people. Mm. So you've got to read a lot. Um, but you also have to write a lot. You have to, you really have to carve out time every day to do it. Like when I'm writing a novel, I'm doing it every day. And it's not like an all day thing. I'll spend a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the evening. If I'm commuting into New York, it's there. If I'm on an airplane, I do it. So you find the time for it, but it's something that I want to find the time for. Yeah. You know, versus clearly cleaning my office. I don't want to find time for that. Although it's not that bad today. What, when do you get up to, to write? Do you get up earlier and get the time best that you work at? I, uh, my routine is usually the first thing I do is I go for a run in the morning. Um, I find that that, especially from writing, I'll run without headphones or music or podcasts or something like that. Cause that's when ideas start to come to me mm. It's just when I'm like in like, med- like running is a meditative thing for me. So I'll go for a, a good run. I'll come up with ideas. And then after that, after a shower, um, I'll sit and I'll write. It's got to happen first thing in the morning or it's got to happen at the end of the day, because then, you know, between eight and six, I'm doing client work and I'm doing stuff that actually generates a real income versus, you know, the writing stuff, which, uh, I always call that future income. <laughs> that's going nice, to be future yeah. income, right? <laughs> that's like um, so that's that's kind of that's my approach anyway. To yeah, to I find the morning is when I have my best. I mean, it's when I have my yeah. It's when I have my ideas that I can focus them and get stuff done. And if I, I find if I write in the morning, even if it's only for like ten twenty minutes, I can keep coming back throughout the day because I've got it started in my brain and it's generating the ideas. But if I if I'm too busy in the morning, I can never, and I go like, you know, through the afternoon without getting something down, I find it impossible to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
you know, it's like, and when I, when I say writing, it's not necessarily writing a story. It could be journaling. It could be hmm. just capturing thoughts. Cause there's a blog that I, I don't give enough attention to, um, that, um, that I think counts as well. Just kind of journaling a thought that you had um, or an observation. Like I travel a lot for business. So I would, I would actually keep a log of like funny things that happen when I'm on the road. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that actually, some of that stuff winds up in, in storylines, but um, yeah. because, you know, sometimes the truth is, is much funnier than, than anything I can create. <laughs> that's where my comedy comes from too. Like everything I do on stage, like a hundred percent of it is just stuff that's happened to me. You know, mm. It's not like I write some joke or, you know, I, it's just usually something happens. Like I, I told this joke the other night in, in Ridgefield, I did a show and, uh, it, you know, it started off with, you know, I hate Dora the Explorer, you know, I got a bone to pick with her because she made me overly confident in my Spanish. And it's funny, like three weeks ago, I turned 45. My, one of my kids' friends sent me happy birthday. You know, it's a girl that's always at the house and, you know, I've known her since kindergarten and she does it in Spanish and I reply in Spanish. But I, I didn't conjugate a verb right or something. Like I did something, you know, that was not appropriate Spanish-wise. I wound up telling her because I put it in Google Translate after my daughter comes home. She's like, Dad, um, Sophie thinks that uh, the note you sent to her was meant for mom. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, why? I said, my name is Mr. Carlin and it's my birthday. She's like, that's not what you said in oh, Spanish. <laughs> I said, okay, let me go to Google Translate. So I go to Google Translate. <laughs> it, it comes up with my name is Mr. Carlin and I will dominate you. Oh boy. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> but I turned it into a joke, you know, I'm like, you know, now I can't volunteer at the kid's school. The mother's got a restraining order against me. Like you turn it into something funny. And then I make Dora the culprit. Like it just, it, like it, but it all worked, right? It all yeah, kind of worked. Wow. Comedically and thankfully, the girl's got a good sense of humor. <laughs> yes, thankfully. <laughs> I didn't mean to dominate the poor kid. I don't dominate anybody. Um, but that's where, like, that's where my comedy comes from. Like, it's just stuff that I see, observe, or stuff that happens. And I feel, for some reason, I feel the need for constant validation. And I have to get up in front of groups of strangers and tell those things about myself. Hmm. But it kind of works. It kind of works. When did comedy start for you? Uh, I remember being in high school and like just at the lunch table with my friends and having a sense of like, this is unlike anything I really know that's going on. Like our sense of humor was just so strange and so us. And I think back to it now and I'm like, what the hell are we thinking? But like, it's still hilarious. To yeah. me. I guess like seeing Monty Python for the first time, I remember the scene where Graham Chapman goes into John Cleese's office and he's got the giant prosthetic nose on. And uh, he says, uh, so Mr. Luxury Yacht. And Graham says, oh, it's, it's spelled Luxury Yacht, but it's pronounced Throat Wobbler Mangrove. <laughs> and I just, something about that resonated so much with me. Uh, just that absurdism. And like, yeah, and my best friend at the time got really into Monty Python at the same time. And we share that, you know, insane sense of humor that yeah. was, yeah, part of the high school experience. And then, it was always something I wanted to try. Uh, and I, and when I went, I moved back to London one of the times and in 2006, I met my friend Duncan and he, he had written a sitcom for BBC, a BBC contest that got third place. Um, and so he was very into writing and I, I was like, oh, I had written, you know, off license to kill. And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to, to try that. You know, why don't, 
why don't we try to work on something? And this when I was moving back in 2007, he was like, yeah, all right. So we went to the pub and just like, you know, we drank for a couple of, we, you know, when you sit down to write, it's like impossible to like, write immediately. Yeah. Like we did, we, I remember we were playing like the quiz machine for a couple hours and we were there for like four hours. We had taken the days off work and school and he was like, fine, well, we should probably do some writing. And we ended up writing like this, these six episodes, which were very funny. I thought at the time, I'm, there's still some gems that I'll probably go back and, you know, use for something else. Cause I liked some of the ideas. Um, and then, I enjoyed the experience a lot. And I re- it was something I really wanted to do. And then a couple of years later in London, I was at a, a nightclub and I was wearing this uh, jacket that was white with red and blue pinstripes on it. it was, and my friend Pippa comes up to me and says, oh, you look like something out of Miami Vice. And my friend Jamie was wearing like a tweed jacket and a bow tie. And you stand next to me and say, and Jamie, you look like an Oxford English professor. And when I woke up the next morning, I was like, you know, we should do something with this. Yeah. And I emailed Jamie and he, like, he said more out of bafflement than anything else. He agreed to go along with this because he hadn't, he's, he's published a book now and he's like a big travel journal, but he hadn't written anything at the time that I know of. And so we again went to the pub and we were like, well, uh, what could we do with this? And we decided that I would be Don Johnson in uh, ex-CIA agent who comes to London and he finds Professor Donald Fox, a uh, professor of 19th, 18th century Albanian poetry. <laughs> And we're like, well, what can we do with this? We're like, oh, we could solve crimes together. <laughs> and it was really, it was still one of the most rewarding creative experiences I've ever been through. We wrote almost every day. In a couple of weeks, we had a 12-minute shooting script together. And then we got a bunch of our friends to act it out. We had one day we could all do it in November. Uh, and we just, we shot it. We rented out the back room of a pub for the interior scenes that we needed. And we used a friend's living room for another. And then we had some other scenes that were outside that, featured girls in bikinis like during a big uh, running chase then they would come out of the bushes and like lure us in All right and somehow I, I to actually one girl i had never met before like a friend of a friend convinced her to come down in a bikini in freezing cold november it's like benny hill in my mind exactly yep so we did that and then we um we got an offer to do it as a radio show on this pirate radio that was going on. And again, we did it all live. We extended the script to like 35 minutes yeah. and that was great. I loved doing that. Um, that's both of those are up online. Uh, I listened to, cause it was the 10 year anniversary of the idea yeah. two days ago. And I listened to the radio show again. And I was like, this, this was really funny. Yeah. And yeah, ever, this, that was 2009, 2010. Yeah. And ever since then I've been wanting to do more. Um, and then like Jamie and I both got girlfriends. So we like, we, we remember being miserable, like at the time we wrote this and it was like really fun to have something to go and do instead yep. of just sitting around like drinking and being miserable. And then like, you know, we got girlfriends, we were much happier and like, uh, we had less time to do it. And I love the, uh, I love the Monty Python roots of it because, um, when I was, uh, probably in middle school, my friend Rob, who introduced me to so many things, like he introduced me to uh, anthrax. Um, not the, not the poison, the band, right. Um, Primus, like he was always introduced me to like, like different music and getting me like into it. But he also introduced me to Monty Python. He came over one day and he brought over, uh, the meaning of life. And uh, I had never seen anything like it before. Like I didn't know what flying circus was. This is you know mid, mid to late eighties, I guess. Um, probably 87, 88. And I'm like, my God, this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And then of course we go to the video store and we get the Holy grail. And from that moment forward, like, you know, from the, from the, the coconuts, you know, in the beginning mm-hmm. um, to the horses going over the, you know, the, the castle. I'm like, this is the, 
funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. A few years ago, we have a theater here in town, uh, which is like the art theater. They do cult classics like once a month, and they were doing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So we got a few guys together. We went, and then I took my nephew, who was uh, probably a junior in high school at the time. And I'm like, Ryan, you're going to love this. I'm like, this, you're going to, you know, it didn't laugh once. I'm like, dude, what's the matter with you? He's like, Uncle Mike, I'm sorry. I just don't think this is very funny. (laughs) I'm like, are you you kidding me? There was a guy sitting next to me with the Tim the Enchanter horns (laughs) on his head. I'm like, people are getting into it. But, man, I, 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 there's something about that comedy. I, I listened to an interview with John Cleese recently. Um, I think it was on uh, Mark Maron's um, WTF podcast. But oh, Cleese is on that? Yeah, he is. Yeah, you got to look. It might be past the 50 episode mark, so okay. you might have to subscribe. But it was fantastic because he had Eric Idle on like a couple weeks earlier too. Like he was doing like the a couple – whoever's left living in Monty Python is probably only those two. I think Michael Palin is uh, – Palin's living. Uh, Terry Jones is dementia. Terry Jones is dementia. Yeah. I always forgot which one. Um, the only movie I watched recently, speaking of Palin, uh, A Fish Called Wanda. That's great. I love that movie. Oh, my God. That movie holds up. That yeah. movie holds up. I laughed as hard as I did back when I first saw it. Like, that movie's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So you got the novel under your belt, right? Um, now you're starting to think about – uh, you're writing some comedy in terms of like sitcom type stuff. Yeah, the novel. Yeah. As I think, I when I first moved back to London, I had that idea of James Vagabond of the Drunken Secret Service. Then I was like, well, what what's the most ridiculous thing I could have him do? And yeah. I thought for a little bit, I was like, oh, he could go back in time and stop prohibition from ever right. happening. I was like, great. And I sat down, and in five weeks, like every day I'd come home from work, and this was weird because I was writing at night, and it yeah. kind of shows how much I loved the idea and was dedicated to it. Because uh, I would come home and just write till 11 at night. And I banged out the first draft of that. And I'd send it to my friends. And they were a few of them were really encouraging about it. And then I was sending it to, like, agents and stuff. And they were not. They yeah. th- they thought there was no worth in it whatsoever. And I was just like, but it, but it's funny. Like, I knew, you know, in my heart that it was funny. And then uh, when Casino Royale came out, I decided I would rework it and then pitch it again. And I had one agent in London who was interested. But they were like... Well, we we like the idea of the Drunken Secret Service, but we want James Vagabond to be more relatable. And I was like, no, yeah. like I'm gonna hold my ground on this because like, it's it's a joke. Like it's he's funny. Like he's there purely for the jokes. You know, I don't want him to just to be like a human thing. Like he's a you know time traveling drunken secret agent. You know, as much as some of us might be able to relate to him, you know, he's not. You know, it's That's pure the, fiction. It's what I what I found with. Um, with agents and, uh, you know, they, they have a tough job to do, right? They've got to find the diamond in the rough. And in this day and age, I know this is going back a long time for you. I mean, the probably predates, you know, Kindle direct publishing. Um, this is what 2006 or yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, so go ahead, that's the thing when then, uh, and I, I, re- I did a screenplay of it, which was great because it gave me, I had to think in a different way yeah. about it. And it gave me new jokes and then no one really wanted to touch that, although some people did find that funny. Um, and then, yeah, 2012, 13, I, I quit drinking in 2012. Um, and it was around that time where you, it was possible now that you could just put something out as an ebook. And I was like, you know, this has been such a big part of my life. I want to, you know, just rev- I'll revise it one more time and, you know, just put, put it out there so it'll be out. And, 
going through it again and having just quit drinking. And I, I quit drinking because it stopped being fun for me, which yeah. was so strange because I never thought it, it, it would ever not be fun. But my hangovers were just like three-day existential yeah. crises. And it's just like, I got I to gotta stop. Yeah. But they were, they were a lot of fun you know, while I was doing it. So it sort of became this ode to my drinking days. And I rewrote the entire last third of the book in that time. And I thought, oh, I'll just revise it, you know, take a couple of weeks and then throw it up. If I was finally done with it in 2014, uh, a friend of mine like uh, sub-edited it for me, which was a great help. Um, and you know, I rewrote the entire last third. And then finally I, I put it out as an ebook. And then I was like, I, I want a physical copy. And then it was yeah. possible to do that then, like yeah. with Lulu. So it's like, yeah. yeah, we'll make this happen. So I, I do want to touch upon the drinking thing. But before that, um, just go, go back to agents, right? Mm. So I could probably wallpaper now this entire <laughs> room with, um, and this is probably, what, 600 square feet, uh, with rejection letters from agents. Mm. And they all say the same exact thing. You know, it's funny. For, for people who are always looking for creative types and original voices, None of those rejection letters are remotely original. <laughs> they all say the same thing. You know, it's like, uh, thank you for submitting. Um, while we uh, enjoy this, uh, we don't feel like we're the best to represent you at this time. Good luck in your search, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have an agent who was interested in my latest one. And he's like, uh, I like it because I sent him the first couple of chapters a year ago. And he's like, but I want you to work with my editor. Um so I sent I sent it to his editor, um, and I mean no deal or anything like that. It was just she needs to see it, you know, pay her what she asks, and then we'll talk when when you're done. Okay, so I sent it to her, and um, she's like really old school. I'm picturing like an 85 year old woman because she only talks over the phone. She doesn't do email. I had to hard copy everything to her, wow. and she's like, we are going to have a three hour phone call. Um, where I will review my notes with you. I'm like, no Word document sent by email with wow. track changes on it, which is kind of what I'm used to, even yeah. though I hate that feature. Um, so we do. We have this phone call. And it was actually eye-opening to me, because just like you're saying in terms of um, not wanting to change a character. And this was the first time I really went hard towards traditional publishing, um, or got close, I should say. I went hard for all of them, but got close. Um, she had some like really critical comments. And at first I'm like, fuck this. You know, I'm like, Mm. she just doesn't get it. And then I'm like, you know what? Maybe I don't get it. You know, maybe because like no one picked up uh, the six previous books, Mm. right? So maybe with book seven, I should be a little bit more open to this kind of criticism. And I, and I was, and I rewrote the entire thing. It was, it was 105,000 words. Um, which is the longest I've ever written. And her big comment was not necessarily the – so you, you, it sounds like your issue was they wanted to change the character. Mm. She didn't want to change my character at all, which I was thankful for. But it was like the complexity of the story. Like for for a lighthearted comedic mystery, it was way too complex. Mm. So, But I took her – you know, I took her, her comments to heart. I got it down to 85,000 words. I completely changed some of the storylines, and fingers crossed it's back in – Nice. In her hands. But th- there is that part of the writing process of getting critical feedback from from people, you know, yeah. which it's hard to deal with at first, I think. And yeah, I, I think you have to be open to it. And I, I totally, if someone can show me like a better way to make my idea better or more understandable, I'm all for it because like that's, that's helping. But if you say, well, I don't like the character, I'm like, well, that's 
that's the whole story, you know. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I stuck to my guns on that. But again, I am always open to, you know, if you if you can make it better and funnier, yeah. you know, at least not, I want to hear it. I, yeah. might, I might not agree with you, but like, you know, right. I'm open to that. Well, that that's the other thing too. It's like, it's still the author's choice. You know? yeah. It's still like, you, you can decide what to do with that information. It's like, yeah, I got into a real big fight with my wife the other night. Um, and I was, I was just kind of exp- just telling her how I feel about certain things. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm just throwing a lot of information at you. What you choose to do with that information is completely up to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like when you get feedback, it's still like you're still the pilot of the ship, you know, and mm. it's still your call. You know, it's your name on the front and back and spine of the book. Um, but speaking of characters, I do want to talk about we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about a certain character who uh, apparently is not left handed. Um, <laughs> still somewhat young, though. Right. And Somewhat, that, would, yeah. that would be uh, that would be young Southpaw. That would yeah. be young Southpaw. So I, I first met young Southpaw probably January or February in uh, in Bridgeport at the stress factory. And I remember looking over at my brother and I'm like, Cause, you know, it was it was an open mic. Uh, you know, now it's called the new talent showcase. But back then it was open mic hosted by Sam Hunter. Um, I, I, I watch young Southpaw. I look over at my brother and I'm like, that was the funniest goddamn thing I've seen all night. <laughs> like I really, you know, just because I, I, you know, I litter my writing with, with pop culture references <laughs> and they're all like, I have a whole book called Motel California. Every, there, there's actually two characters in it who do nothing. They're, they're detectives. They're, they're twin brother detectives who grew up on the sunset strip and they were in rock bands in the eighties. And then, um, you know, glam rock comes to an end with Nirvana, and they decide to become cops, right? Of course, of course. they do, right? <laughs> um, but the entire book, they argue about Sammy versus Dave, you know, Brian Johnson versus what's-his-face from ACDC. Um, you know, and they, they argue, you know, uh, who who is the best, you know, uh, second, who is the best guitar player for Kiss in the post-Ace Freely era? You know, like, they argue about this the entire time. So, like, when, when young Southpaw brings up anything pop culture-wise and goes from A to Z to B to J <laughs> and somehow gets back to Z and callbacks A, I, I, I'm left speechless, number one, but I, I'm dying, you know. It's just hysterical. So I, I saw you back in, it was either January or February because it was right when I first started. And I'm like, this, this, this is something special here. I'm like, Jim, we are witnessing <laughs> something awesome. So I want to understand how young South Paul was born, like where his origin story is. Okay. Uh, I, for some reason that I have never been able to understand, my voice will sometimes slip into a Southern drawl. And I, yeah. I don't know that I'm doing it unless like a friend points it out. Like I'll just be for a couple words at a time. And I, I was living in LA in 2017 and I decided I, well, I love LA and I would love to uh, live there again at some point. Uh, it was just a bit expensive and I felt Nashville calling me. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. It's not just a bit expensive. I lived there for yeah. six months. <laughs> you know, you go to the grocery store, there's a 10% tax. Like it's like you're, you know, I bought a couch at Ethan Allen, you know, in LA, the tax on the goddamn couch was over a thousand bucks. And I'm like, I'm like, are you, wait, what, what? 
I'm like, excuse me? Like, what's happening here? Like, it is, it is, it is a very expensive place to live. And the traffic stinks. But go ahead. So my grandmother has a place in Florida. Um, and I decided I would just go there for a bit. I, you know, everyone was cool with that and just figure out what I wanted to do. And it's great because I, I didn't tell anybody. It's like no one really knew where I was. He's off the grid, man. Yeah. August off the grid. Like four months. And then like by March, it was just like, I, I can't be here in the summer. It is so muggy already. Yeah. And Nashville had been calling me because I was still doing music at the time. And I'm, you know, another major music city um, with, you know, great food. And I just, I've always loved Nashville a few times. Yeah, it's a cool school. city. Very cool city. So when I decided to go, I realized, um, you know, it's like a 16 hour drive. And I took a couple days to get up there. And Who's Live Anyway was playing in Augusta, Georgia yeah. with, you know, a city with my name in it. And I'm yeah. a huge Greg Proops fan, Jeff Davis, and yeah. Dave Foley from the Kids in the Hall was on that tour. And yeah. I was like, I got to go. Um, so I went and, you know, you're in the car for like 8 to 12 hours a day by yourself. You just start talking to yourself. So yeah. I, I kind of put the day of that show as Young Southpaw's birthday because I, I saw that and I had already started talking in this strange Southern accent that I do. And, and I was recording this stuff on my phone and just letting stuff come out. I didn't really know what it was, um, but I'd have all these ideas. They'd make me laugh. I'd record it. And I saw that show and it was hilarious because I've, I'd never really been, I'd been to some improv stuff before, which is always funny, but like this was just, I remember being there and just like laughing and I couldn't explain why I was laughing. It was just instinctual. I was just laughing because it was funny. Like there was no thought about it. And I was just like, oh, this, that was really great. And so I'd, Two more days, I think, before I reached Nashville, and I, I, I kept up with this this story that I had started in the, in the car. Uh, and at some point before I got to Nashville, I think I had named him Young Southpaw mm-hmm. um, because I liked I, I thought of Southpaw just because I was in the South, right? And I thought oh, that sounds cool. It, it just can't be Southpaw; it has to be something else. I was listening to a, an audiobook about uh, you know, Carl Gustav Jung, the Swiss yeah. psychoanalyst. Yeah. I was like, "Well, I can't name him Young Southpaw," and um, but Young Young Southpaw that has a nice ring to it. Yeah. And so, um, I was still in, in the car a lot. Like I was doing deliveries for work, so I was in the car like most of the day, and I just kept recording stuff. And eventually, this story came out. Uh, and I had like 35 minutes of it. And I uh, I stayed at an Airbnb when I got to Nashville. I was looking for a place. And they had a meditation room, like a shed in the backyard. And I, I meditate every day. So I would go in there and meditate. It was a nice little room. And then when the story was ready a couple months later, I called them up because I couldn't record it at my house because it was a great house. But I had roommates and the people who owned it had like chickens and dogs. It was like really too noisy. I called them up. I was like, yeah, I have this idea. I didn't tell them what it was because you know how, how do you explain young <laughs> it's hard to put into words yeah. and uh i was like can i can i rent your you know meditation room for a couple hours to record and they're like oh i think i said to work on something and they're like oh yeah you know sweet old couple and they're like yeah yeah that's fine and i went there like a couple days over the course of a couple weeks and like banged out this recording and uh that was, that's the at the movies album that's up on Bandcamp. Yeah. and then a couple weeks later well, it was my New Year's resolution, actually, for 2018 to try stand-up comedy. And because um, I've been in my mind for everything. I'd written comedy before, and I'd always thought about doing a stand-up set. And I was just like, oh, I don't really know what it would be. I was doing music anyway. And, and that was the thing, too. Like, part of the reason I switched to comedy was, like, I was doing these solo acoustic shows where a big part of it was talking to the audience in between songs, and, like, telling the stories and, you know, having it be funny. And I liked that element a lot to it. Uh, and so, you know, I put that record out 
in August, they had the movies thing. And I was like, oh, well, the year's almost over. I got to get on this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, actually, I started the, the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast because I was like, I like this idea. And I had you know, plenty of ideas kicking around that didn't quite fit into the whole story. Yeah. But um, what's the third episode? Like, like the connection between Anthony Burgess and Van Halen, mm-hmm. all the extreme Bon Joe, like, you know, slipper going wet. Why are you warning people? People don't get their records wet. Why, why do you need to warn that? Um, so those became like the first couple of uh, podcast episodes. Yeah. And then like five years ago, I got really into Chinese astrology. Um, I found this book in a used bookstore in England and it just, it was weird. I'd always had an interest in Feng Shui. It's called the Feng Shui Diaries by uh, Richard Ashworth, who's... Um, yeah, one of the Western masters. He's uh, and it was really interesting. I started flipping through, and there were all these coincidences popping out of the book. Like the first page I opened to, it said Bristol, and I was like, "I'm going to Bristol tomorrow. I'll, I'll buy this and read it on the train." Yeah, and so I bought it. It was super interesting. The thing about Chinese astrology, you know, you you have the animal of the year mm-hmm. you were born in, right? Like I assume you were a tiger. Tiger baby, yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> is the wood element, which is writing. Yeah. Well, there that we makes go. Sense. Hey. Yeah. Hey now. Um, but you also have one for the month you were born, the day you were born, and the hour you were born. And it says this in the book, and the um, Richard was like, uh, well, you know, you need a Chinese calendar to learn. You know, the, the month is sort of pretty straightforward. You know, it's kind of like Western astrology. They're always the same. Um, but the day you need a Chinese calendar to know what the animal for the day was. So he's like, just email me. So I emailed him. And in my sign-off for my email, I used to have, like, links of all my bands. And I guess he clicked on one because he liked my band and he came to see me when I was in London a couple months later. And, uh, you know, he, he liked what he was listening to. We got to talking. He was like, I know you want to be back in London because it was after my visa had run out. And I was living back here. Um, I was, I would just go over for a couple months at a time and do gigs for, on a visitor's visa. And, uh, he was like, I think I can help. Why don't I read your chart for you? And he read my chart and like in an hour and a half, I cried like six times. It was just like, so, like what he was saying just resonated so yeah. much and you can pinpoint like certain things in the chart, like when things happen that had like a major influence on you. And I, one of the first things he said to me was you, you were born in the year of the fire dragon, which is the most introverted of all the animals. Like fire is very much in your own head. Dragons are very, uh, they're the magicians of the Zodiac, but they tend to get very, you know, inside themselves. Or are they the wizards of the Zodiac? Exactly. I say, I love that. Mm, interesting. But the day I was born, was the day of the fire horse, which is the most extroverted of all the animals. Uh, it's out there, you know, horses running fast and doing things. It's the performer. And he's, you know, the sort of interplay. But the day you were born is, the year you are born is who you are, like where you come from, your family and stuff on a very general level. But um, the day you were born is who you, who you really are, like on a subtle level. So for me, it's a pull between extreme introversion and extreme extroversion and it hit me that that might be why i write because that's a way of getting out there with while still sitting in your room on your own you know like on a safe space but he he kind of pushes this with me he's like you know you who you are as a fire horse it's a performer you there's something you have a great desire to be seen but a terrible fear of it and i was like well that that is just perfect um but, you know, it is part of my makeup, wanting to get out there and on stage. And when I'm on stage, I'm, I'm a different person. It's still yeah. me, but it's, it's a very different aspect of me. So like the, an aspect of the dragon is they tend to be all over the place, which you'll have noticed in this conversation. No, I haven't noticed that at all, Og. <laughs> 
So bringing this back to September 2018, when I still have to get my New Year's resolution of trying comedy on, there, um, there's a thing in Chinese astrology called date selection, where you can look at the uh, the energies of the day and figure out what resonates most with your you know personality makeup. So I, I looked at the calendars, consulted the masters, and I decided that October 4th was the perfect day for me to try stand-up comedy there for the you first go. time. Coming up on a year. Yep. It was uh, the month of the rooster, which is the secret friend of the dragon, very helpful. And October 7th, it was going to change to the month of the dog when the dragon and dog are diametrically opposed. So it would have been a lot of challenge that I, I felt I didn't need for trying something for the first time. So October 4th, I'm all for it. I'm all ready. Look at the open mic list for the greater Nashville area. There are none. <laughs> <laughs> but there's one in Memphis. And me being prone to like self-mythologizing and loving this, like Elvis, I'm a huge Elvis fan. Sure. Burning Love is my favorite song of all time. I thought if I'm going to do this, a 200-mile each-way round-trip journey would show the seriousness of my intent. And I took the day off work. I had to go to the DMV. I was there for like five hours to get my Tennessee license. Um, but then after that, I hopped in the car Drove the three hours to Memphis, went to this cool vegan restaurant, went to the PH Cafe, which is a cool dive bar. They had a huge uh, painting of Elvis above the stage, and I was on 7th. Um, and I remember the host coming I emailed the host ahead of time. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll put you on. But then I remember him asking, what was your name again? I was like, well, I'm going on as Young Southpaw. And he just shook his head. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the first six people didn't get many laughs. And yeah. then I went up. And uh, like within 30 seconds, it was probably the story you first heard. There was a Britney Spears joke mm. that got a laugh. And I remember that feeling. And then the laughs kept going uh, for the rest of the five minutes. And I loved it. And the host came up to me and thanked me for getting the crowd going. I didn't tell him it was my first time. Yeah. And then people kept coming up to me like, I love the whole stream of consciousness, surreal thing. I mean, the way you connect you know, Randy Rhodes and uh, Cynthia Rhodes and Nick Rhodes. And Cynthia Rhodes was... Uh, Actress who was actually my first ever crush. She mm. was in Flashdance and Dirty Dancing um, and Staying Alive. She was John Travolta's girlfriend. Yeah. And I remember at the end of Staying Alive, she says, after he does his whole play thing, and, you know, kicks ass. And she's like, well, what do you feel like doing now? And he says, I'm going to strut. And then he walks out the stage door and strutting through New York, the streets of New York City. And I remember thinking of that and I strutted nice. back to my car. Nice. <laughs> and then I drove 200 miles home. And like since then, I've I've been hooked. So, I mean, cars are like magical, I think, for coming up with ideas. When um, Before I had written my first book, I was on a uh, – I was working with a guy who was a Hollywood film guy. So, yeah, it's funny. Like most people think, you know, actors and writers and stuff that they're all like loaded and wealthy and that's the only thing they do for money. Like for, for most people, that's like far from the truth. You know, it's like you always have to have some kind of gig. His gig uh, is to – film focus groups and like in-home interviews. And that's what I do. So I run interviews all over the country and we were driving from here to somewhere South of Philadelphia um, to film an interview for a, a big insurance company. Um, and we're just like shooting the breeze the entire way down. And um, for some reason we start, we just start randomly talking in British accents, just like to, just cause we're like, we're just totally improving the whole way down. And I said, you know what? I said, Joe, my name is Blaze Hazelwood, and I was a former soap opera star. <laughs> that was more Australian, but <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not good at accents most of the time. Um, and he's like, dude, that's a funny name, Blaze Hazelwood. He's like, let's do something with it. I'm like, all right. So then we just like start like coming up with his backstory. And his backstory is he was a, well, on a show like Falcon Crest in the 80s, you know. And, but now it's like present day and he wants to get back into the entertainment industry because he's tired of doing just voiceover work. So like, that's how like my first book was born, just in that car ride on the way to, to Philadelphia. And it took me like a year and a half to bang it out. Um, cause I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Mm. Um, but it just, it's just funny how just having time alone, you know, when you can't really do much of anything else, you're forced to, and you're forced to kind of make your own entertainment. I think like the mm. radio in the car was broken. Like it was mm-hmm. not like, we didn't have like anything else to do. Um, but I also love, uh, you're just kind of like crushing it. Like your first time out, you know, that's um that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That seems to be a thing I hear from Oscar yeah. that it goes really well your first time, and yeah. then after that it gets oh, a bit yeah. hairy. No, it's not good. <laughs> I I remember it's weird because with Southpaw, at least for the first few months, I was it was tough because it was it, it, <laughs> how do I best explain this? I remember getting up and like lots of smiles, yeah. not so much laughs, mostly just confused faces. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I would get that. off stage and there'd always be a couple people who would come up and like fist bump me or yeah. something. I was like, oh, well, at least it connected to like, you know, like I was having three people. Wow, that's that's amazing that like people got this bizarre thing that I'm doing. Yeah. And I yeah, and I remember like yeah, that it was that way a lot through through the winter. It was like I could count on about 20% of the people getting it. And then the rest might be openly hostile yeah. <laughs> toward it. We also have to consider where you are, um, especially at some place like the Stress Factory, where you know most other people there are comedians, and they chances are they're not paying attention to you. Yeah. Um, but no, I always, I you know, the first time I saw it, I'm like, just hysterical. Like it spoke to me, like just because of all the references and how you. The thing is how you tie them together, <laughs> like in this like you know kind of nonlinear fashion. I guess is the best way to say it. Is I remember you emailed me the next day. Yeah. And I was so freaking psyched. I was like. Somebody got it. Wow, and I was awesome. trying to figure out, like, how I found your name. Like, I think I went through the list, or I think I went to Alyssa um, at the, you know, the, the whore at the door at the stress factory, who has become a friend of mine. Um, and she's, like, the sweetest thing and a very good comic in her own right. I'm like, who's the guy with the glasses? And he did, like, <laughs> I think I may have said members only jacket or something, because I don't know why in my head you were wearing one. You probably weren't. But, like, to me... <laughs> You had glasses and a members only jacket on. And I'm like, yeah, you had a Southern accent. Oh, she's like, oh, yeah, I know him. I'll send you his email address. So she like narked you out. Um, ah. That's how I got it okay. because uh, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that, that was like it legitimately was one of the funniest things I saw that night. Um, especially in those like those that time at the Stress Factory, like the talent deferred new talent night um, was hit or miss, let's say. Mm. Kind of hit or miss. But, um so what's um what's up next? So I know you're doing some things as Augstone, like you're doing some storytelling stuff as yes. Augstone, because um, I saw you do that at the Sea Grape a few weeks ago. You were starting; it was like the intro part. It sounded like of the Nick Cave bar story. It's actually the end part, oh, but is. I had to like set it up. It's it's a little bit of the intro, and then I I hadn't yet tried okay. out the end on stage because yeah. I, I it's kind of like the two layovers in Luxembourg Airport, right? Um. So yeah, that's cool that it, it seemed to just yeah not no no it, be a, it, yeah, a it didn't on. seem just um, discombobulated to me. But what I what I actually found interesting of, of that is, you know, you've you've been there a few times. I've been there a few times. That is a hard room to get people's attention in yeah. because you got a bunch of locals at the bar. You know, half of them are hammered out of their minds. 
you're competing with baseball on mute, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you don't think that that's really competition, but apparently some people like baseball on mute. Um, and you really have to earn their attention because mm. if you don't like you, you hear the volume in the room, what I found is that they'll give you 15 seconds, right? <laughs> and then if the volume in the room is going up after 15 seconds, you're done. Um, you were able to hold the attention for the entire time. And I think it was the delivery too. Like it was very engaging delivery. Um, cause you could tell you're, you're, you're probably used to telling stories in between songs, mm. um, as a singer songwriter, but, um, yeah, the, the the Aug stuff seems pretty cool too. And I know you're doing like a book a book reading tour. Yes, right? uh, Brian Barganier and I are gonna. He wrote a, a very funny book called The Liquor Store Chronicles about his five years working at a liquor store in Hartford, which sounds like the worst place on earth. It's it's hilarious. Yeah. Like there are people who can't count past the number five in it. Like customers showing up with needles hanging out of their arms and. Oh, it just sounds so awful, but like it's it's really really funny. Yeah. And he was he put it out recently, and he was like, "Yeah, I want to do some book readings." And I was like, "You know, I've always wanted to do book readings for Off License to Kill. I never did. Like, why don't we do stuff together?" And like he was psyched at the idea. So we've we're doing uh, AJ's comics in Colchester on October 9th, and then Dexter's Tunes Tales and Ales, which is a looks like a really cool bar. I haven't been there yet, but they're it looks like they have some really good stuff going. Any bar that sells records and books like is great yeah. <laughs> by you know, by me. Doing that on the 11th, and then we're going to QED in Queens on the 19th, mm-hmm. and we're setting some more up like a little farther in the future. Like we, we'd like to do more, you know, date in Southern Connecticut, New Haven, yeah. go up to Boston, maybe Providence. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, and I've I've, I've got to get on that because I got to figure out what I'm actually going to read. Um, what chapters would uh, yeah. you know, introduce people best to Vagabond? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a, that's a cool thing. Um, the, um, what was the other thing? I, I do want to just touch upon something you mentioned earlier about like stopping drinking and kind of feeling mm-hmm. like you've had enough because, you know, I got to a point where, you know, for, for like three years I was coming home or I was coming on my work out of my house. Um, but at night I got into this habit of sitting on the couch and, and having a few glasses of wine. And by that, I mean a bottle, um, and feeling like shit, Mm. like every day, seven days a week. And I'm like, you know what? Earlier this year, when I started performing at the stress factory, I, I never saw pictures of myself because in my house, I'm the one who takes all the pictures. Um, but I would videotape or video record because there's no tape, right? Mm. <laughs> um, I'd video record every one of my sets and, and, uh, I was watching them and I'm like, there's a fat guy up there. Like, like, not that I was like significantly overweight, but I was heavier than I'd ever been. I clocked in at like 217 or something. And I'm like, uh, I think I gotta, I think I gotta do something about this. Mm. So I worked with a friend of mine who I had on this podcast. She has a book um, called Why Can't I Stick to My Diet? It's actually very – it did very well um, in uh, in the trade, um, like properly published and all that. Like she's uh, like a – who I would call like a successful author. Um, and she's also a coach. So she does this um, weight loss coaching. Um, and like she calls herself a holistic health coach. And she's like, look, I'm not going to charge you. I'll just help you. I'm like, okay, nice. I'll, 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 I'll take the help. So she, she actually put a group of people together. This is way back when JLo had been doing like her challenge to cut carbs back in like late January, early February. She did something on the Today Show challenging everybody. 
Um, so my friend decided to do the same thing with this group of people and she was going to motivate us and coach us. And, you know, part of it was no alcohol for three weeks. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I think I can do that. I, I thankfully was able to do that. And I'm like, my God, but every morning I woke up and I started like, I felt like a human being and I felt mm. good. Right. Um, so I like cut, I didn't cut it out completely. I did for those three weeks, but like now, like my approach to it is like completely different. It sounded like though you had a more drastic history with this distilled spirits <laughs> than, than I did. But, um, yeah. what, what do you, do you mind just touching upon that at no. all? Or? Um, yeah. see, my thing is like, I can drink liquids till the cows come home, any form of liquid. Um, so I could just pound, you know, like five Guinnesses would be nothing to yeah. me. <laughs> um, I already feel bloated by yeah. the way, just hearing <laughs> you say that. And I, I mean, I stopped a few times. I had some serious liver trouble in 2003. It was weird. I went to see a specialist. Um, I remember a, a doctor told me your liver could rupture at any time. Shit. <laughs> and I went to see a liver specialist and they're, they weren't, he was like, how much do you drink? I was like, I have like eight vodka cranberries a night. And they're like, I don't see why that's a problem. I was like, really? That even seems alarming to me now that I say it out loud. But he's like, you should cut out um, Cut out the cranberry, kid. Yeah. Well, it's the sugar. Like, yeah. when I stopped drinking, um, they, when F. Uh, F. Scott. Yeah, F. Scott. It's a softball joke, W. Scott Fitzgerald. But that's a different story. F. Scott Fitzgerald, when he quit drinking, he was drinking 25 Coca-Colas a day. Yeah. Because it's the sugar. Like, your body craves yeah. the sugar. Like, his Hollywood office was just covered in uh, empty Coke bottles. And I, when I quit drinking, I still eat a lot of fruit, but I'd be eating like an entire pineapple, a half a watermelon, and like three nectarines a day because I just I'm, I needed that sugar. Yeah. Um, so I, I would take breaks. Like after 2003, that, that I, I stopped for a little bit, um, but they they told me to like stop drinking milk and coffee, which was weird, and to cut out like candy, which makes sense with the sugar. And then there were a couple other times, like due to ill health, which you know the drinking did not help them. Sure. I would stop for like six months and it's fine. Like I could always stop no problem, but like when, you know, when I could drink again, it was part of my life, especially being in, in London you right. know, when you're at the pub all the time. I remember when I did, when I did quit, uh, I saw an old girlfriend a couple of years later at a wedding. She was like, but you loved drinking. <laughs> I was like, I know, I know with the implication, you know, you love drinking more than me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and it, it was just, I mean, it was largely about how you feel. And I remember in 2011, uh, my sister recommending a book, uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. He has like a mindfulness meditation thing up in Boston. And a big thing in that was doing the body scan where you just, you know, you start focus on your big toe and you just bring your focus slowly along your body and get in touch with what mm-hmm. your body's telling you. And I did that every day for eight weeks. And it, I really got more in touch with what was going on with me physically. Again, like being so much in my own head about everything. And like a drinking was drinking was great because it kind of got me out of that. And I became more social. And, you know, I talked to people instead of just, you know, hanging out by myself, reading obscure Russian novels. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so 2011, I you know started getting more in touch with you know my body. And, and this all happened kind of around the same time. Uh I drastically changed my diet after I, I quit drinking. I'm now vegan and gluten free, and like I, everyone in my family's lactose intolerant, but no one admits it. When I gave up cheese, I felt like 200 times better. Yeah, and I was. Just, it was a matter of like this feels better, so let's go with this because you know it is about how you feel. And uh, I remember 2011. I'm drinking was already starting to wind down for me in 2012. 
barring a wedding and the stag do for that, I had had, I think I had five drinks. Um, and, you know, I, I would have five drinks like my first hour and a half at a pub normally. Right. <laughs> and it, it got to the point where I remember like just being mis- like absolutely miserable. Kingsley Amos once said, he who believes he is hungover has no hangover. And I remember like just having like, you know, literally existential crises, like being in bed for like three days, like any time I you know, wasn't at work or school or anything, I'd just being in bed, just like clutching my head, just being in like intense physical and spiritual pain. And then like after 48 hours at some point realizing, wait a minute, I had like 13 pints the other night. Maybe that has something to do with right. it. This is just a hangover. Right. And it's like, oh, and then you kind of like make the connection. But, you know, when, when you're in the depths of it, you don't think it's a hangover. You think it's like, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, it's like it's like interesting because it's like it seems like you're able to close that chapter on your life and, and not necessarily like maybe happy that you had it, but not really miss it. And it allows you to do other things. It, yeah, it's so weird because I it was such a big part of my life. And. Bastille Day, July 14th, 2012. I didn't plan on it being the last time. I just, I was out, we went record shopping on a pub crawl and I wasn't drinking for the first six hours at the pub crawl. Then like my friends were and they had a parasite on the menu. So I was like, oh, that sounds tasty. And it was really delicious. And then like, we just, we went to the bar, we drank till 2 a.m. And we were back at my flat and having a Chimay Bleu, you know, mm-hmm. Belgian ale and really tasty. And that was the last drink I ever had. I wasn't planning on it. And it was just like, I don't, a couple of weeks later, I, realized, I haven't had a drink in a while. I haven't felt like drinking. I'm yeah. really, I've never felt like drinking since. Like there's times in my head, it was like, oh, it'd be fun to go out and drink with my friends. But when I check with my body, it's like, I don't feel the need to do that. anymore. I feel fine, you know, physically as I am. Because again, it was, too, it was a way to, you know, relax. Yeah. Like, an easy way to relax. But now I've had to put like a lot more work into it, like with meditation and stuff and like, you know, focusing on my breathing. You know? Right. Which, but, which is also pretty admirable because, you know, as you know, being a musician, I mean, there, there's no lack of, uh, you know, partying substances mm. around, um, or even in, in comedy clubs, man, it, it's, uh, there's some, especially with comics, you know, there's, yeah. there's some dark ass people out there <laughs> who do not really treat themselves all that, all yeah. that well. And, um, you know, you, I mean, I see it, I'm sure you see it and it's like, you're surrounded by it, but there's that kind of knowledge of kind of what is, you know, it's like, it's almost like you're thinking about, and I do this too. And I, I'll put words in your mouth. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but you're thinking about like, well, how are you going to feel the next day and how you want to be feeling and, and almost maybe what you want to accomplish. And, you know, if something gets in the way of that, it's easy to say, it's easier now anyway, to say no to it. And say, so, you know what, I, I, I don't need that. I don't want that. Or Yeah, like being more in touch with what's going on and what the consequences will be. And yeah. uh, just being more responsible because there are more important things that I want to be doing. Like there's so much creative stuff I want to go out, get out there. And like a, a being hungover and not being able to work in the yeah. limited time I have, it, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's no, like, I, I hear like when I'm when I was writing books um, – I can't, I can't write hungover. Like the neurons don't fire. Like my, my thought process is too erratic. I get distracted easily. Um, but it sounds like we're grownups. Yeah. yeah. God damn, when did that happen? <laughs> I don't know when it happened. Shit. I have three kids. That's my excuse. No, you have no I kids. Have no, I have no excuse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's next? What's next? So you've got the, the book reading tour. Um, any comedy dates coming up? Any bat soup dates coming up that you want to promote? No more bat soup is kind of on hold for a while because uh, I'm going to try out a few different things that are more southpaw oriented. Okay, 
Like I, it came about because I wanted to give Southpaw more time on stage. Um, and I thought I'd invite my friends to you know, be on with me. And yeah. I, you know, I like the idea, and I, I'm open to doing it. But I like the idea even more of doing more Southpaw. Like I don't know how much of a like uh, mental assault it might be on people, but like doing like a half an hour of Southpaw like yeah. somewhere, and just having maybe like somebody open for me, or just doing it on my own. That's something I'm looking into getting going, uh, yeah. just to try out more long form ideas. I am doing a show called Skin Tight Buffoonery on October 29th at Pete's Candy Store in, in Brooklyn um, with Nick Grunrud and Joe Rumrill, who are both very funny guys. They're more out there like Southpaw is, and that's what I'm thinking for shows right now of having it just being a night of very bizarre comedy. Yeah, so that sounds uh, like fun. Yeah. And I assume people can go to augstone.com to check out all those dates? Yes, and youngsouthpaw.com has all of it. Podcast. Young South has his own website, huh? Yo, you didn't know that? I, maybe I did. I think I just, by instinct, always went to augstone.com. Oh, yeah. But. Young Southpaw, has, it's got the home of the podcast. And yeah, all the photos. <laughs> all right. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, a couple people have messaged me recently because I was, I was doing the podcast every week for a while, uh, which is just like 10 to 20 minutes of just me getting ideas out there. Then I kind of refine those for live. But I haven't had time to do it lately. And so people were like, well, are you going to be doing more? And it's like, yes, I just got to carve out the time to actually get you know, these things recorded. I tell you, the Def Leppard one, when I was, I was listening <laughs> to that, um, I think I was running. I think I went for a run. I was listening to it just for like a warm up. And I just I had to stop because it's so funny. <laughs> it's just so funny. And I was like, and I think we emailed about it too. Yeah. I'm like, that, it just, it just, again, the, the whole Southpaw thing, it really speaks to me. I love the Southpaw. Awesome. Loving the Southpaw. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this is good. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> <laughs> and that's my curveball at the end. <laughs> well, I, I had some questions about your all the blanks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All the blanks I cannot give. But you, said, you said another one of your novels was even more referential. They're probably Motel California, just okay. because of the two cops who are always talking about uh, 80s glam bands. They're always arguing about 80s glam bands. Um, but no, all the, all the Fs. Uh, actually, this last book that I did, the editor had me take out like 50% of the references. Really? Yeah. Wow. Which it was hard for me to do, but I saw her point. She's like, look, she's like, it, it makes sense. You know, I know you do stand up. Um, but you got to give the reader a break. You're, you're throwing too much at them. Mm. I said, okay. So I picked and choose the ones that were very important for me to keep. <laughs> and then the others that I had to, tough. it's like, you know, trying to decide who your favorite child is or the least favorite child is, I guess. But, um, yeah, I had to, I had to get rid of some of them. Some of them I, I'm proud of and I saved them for, yeah, for you at a later date, but cool. Yeah. But now all the apps is fun. Uh, I'm actually, I'm trying to, uh, guy who did the audio book. For that was a guy named Mike Dawson, who is Adam Carolla's voiceover guy. So he's the voice of the Adam Carolla show and podcast. Um, and he does these uh, book events with authors. Um, so he asked me if I could come out to L.A. and do one of those book events. Um, awesome. We're just trying to settle on the date sometime this fall. Nice. So I'm trying to uh, try to hammer that down. That would be fun to do. That would be fun yeah. to do. It's a Q&A um, you know, at a bar somewhere. and. You know, any excuse to go out to LA is is fine for me. It's uh, I have an affinity for that, not necessarily the city itself, but the climate and um, kind of atmosphere, I guess. Oh yeah, I love LA. No, yeah. we should, we should do one out here. 
Not if a you, bad you, idea. If you're going to be doing more on that book, yeah. That'd yeah, be yeah. Fun. I mean, I um, I'm, I'm happy. I did I did something at Barnes and Noble a couple of years ago. Um, the trick with them is getting them to like stock copies of the book. Mm. Um, that's the hard part because they they won't buy it if it's got an Amazon imprint on it. So you gotta uh, you gotta go through uh, Ingram Spark, and that's like a separate a separate process you have to do. We could talk about it. We're going to bore everybody with, with, with those weeds. But uh, thanks for coming in, man. This is a great yeah, conversation. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Uh, yeah, just check out the Young Southpaw podcast, the Young Southpaw part of an hour, because I think there's some real gems in there, especially lately. Uh, and you can get that at youngsouthpaw.com, but also download directly from iTunes, I believe. Yeah, it's on iTunes, Google Play, all those. Wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. All right, very good. Thanks, Aug. Thank you, Michael. Well, there you have it. My interview with the one and only Renaissance man, Aug Stone. What a great conversation. I had so much fun talking to him. I, this interview could have gone on for another hour and a half. Uh, there's so much to, uh, to talk to him about. But, um, you know, you, you got you to gotta end on a high note, right? I mean, it's got to all good things come to an end, as my mother used to tell me. Um, if you want to learn more about Aug, please go to augstone.com or, and or youngsouthpaw.com so you can have your mind blown. If you want to learn more about me, you can feel free to go to MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. You can learn about all my novels and watch a couple of little clips of me doing the stand-up. Um, and uh, there's a blog on there. You can read some of my musings about various things. Uh, happy to say that my new novel, uh, Slippery People, is uh, the, the third round of edits is happening as we speak. So hopefully some news to share on that front uh, before the end of the year. Got to query the agents and all that good stuff and and get ready for a bunch of rejection letters. Man, that process just never um, ceases to knock one down a little bit. But whatever. It's part of the process. We got to go through it. So for all the great people here at Uncorking a Story, all the hardworking souls that put this podcast together, I'm going to say thank you on their behalf, okay? I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that liberty. So thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please share it with someone else. always love it when people share the podcast. Helps me, uh, you know, helps my ego out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Keep smiling. And until next time, this is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening.